It is Tuesday. RawMikeRichards.com broadcasting live from the DKI Studios in downtown Toronto. 234 King Street East of the Pacific Junction Hotel and on Sportsnet, the Fan 960. Well, today, Dave is away. So we will play with one of my favorites and your favorite too, Big Will Strickland. From Rice, which I believe is also, is that the Harvard? Of the South. Oh, I didn't. Oh, there you go. He's congratulating himself. The crowd Absolutely. is going, going crazy. Going, can't you hear them? Oh, they. well, we had to keep them out. We had to keep them out. Oh, there we go. Oh, everything's happening. Don't worry, I'm not going to snap like I did the other day. Uh, we'll also take a look at uh, some uh, basketball throwbacks. We're going to have a little bit of a basketball conversation today. I know that Will also wants to talk about Max Pacioretty. That's right. He's a little heated about that. And we'll actually talk about some real issues, including Tracy Lords. Was she too young? We'll throw that one out to the audience. Legally, the answer is yes. Uh, the rookie camps and the rookie tournaments, as you saw yesterday, we talked about uh, what you saw in Calgary, what you see in Toronto. And I think for, uh, you know, a lot of the harder core fans, you know, they get a chance to see some of these guys are a couple years away if they're, if they're, if they're going to make it at all. But I think it's kind of fun. So uh, we looked at the – no, we didn't see the Leafs the other day, but I don't think there's too much to talk about. This is um, – Really, an evaluation for an organization and a coaching staff to see, you know, possibly what they could, you know, bring up to the big team should they need it. So uh, we won't uh, overindulge into that. Also, probably today I'll talk a little bit about college football. Can't believe I basically ran the board on college football, NFL, and lost on the Cyprus, Cyprus Slovenian UEFA Nations Cup game. Oh, you're talking that football. Yeah, that football. Oh, okay. Yeah, and Northwestern. Northwestern, boy, I'll tell you. And of all teams, Duke. I mean, I, I normally save my Duke hatred for the basketball season. My dad, who all of a sudden, he calls them his Dukies. There is nothing more annoying when people say Dukies. And now <laughs> and now we see them uh, win a football too bad. But I, I do want to get your take. By the way, Will, thanks for coming in, man. Thanks I always love me. it. I loved you know, with uh, Coach Krzyzewski and, and uh, seeing uh, R.J. Barrett come up and, um, you know, that tour they had of Canada. I hope they do it more often, and I hope, you know, I don't know if it's possible for other schools to do the same kind of thing. Duke is that kind of name. But I thought it was a win-win for everybody. I think the fans loved it. I think it was great for young uh, kids in this country to see, you know, that, that someone sitting in those seats, like R.J. did when he was a kid watching his dad, they, they can go there. They can do that. And it's excellence in basketball. It's excellence in coaching. I thought it was a great idea. Did you like it? It was. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you definitely have to have the elements to make that work. R.J. Barrett being the number one high school basketball player on the planet didn't hurt that, as well as having a guy like Zion Williamson who, oh, in the mixtape era, oh, yeah. to see this kid before he shows up, he's like a superhero, yeah. and then he comes up and does the same things on the court against teams across Canada. So... Uh, you would have to have the elements to make that work. And to be fair to other schools who have come to Canada and have done tours and played against other universities and colleges here in the, in the country, this has always been a part of what they've done. As a matter of fact, there are times when I played on a semi-pro team here called GT Express. We played the University of Pittsburgh at the old... What do they call it now? Scotiabank Arena. Oh, the um, practice gym. Used oh, to be the ACC. Oh, yeah. The, the, so, yeah. you know, we would play those teams. We played University of Pittsburgh under Jamie Dixon there. We played a bunch of, like, schools we would tour in the state. So some schools would come up and tour. As a matter of fact, one of my friends who, uh, uh, good friends who I played college basketball with, is an assistant coach at Virginia Commonwealth mm -hmm. and uh, the home of Sherman Hamilton. Uh, as a matter of fact. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and he's looking to come up here and do a tour. It won't be on the scale of a Duke tour, obviously. But it gives you a chance to see these young people compete against teams and players they might not have an opportunity to play against in the States. Um, and to show their wares and see, you know what, maybe I'll do two years here and go down to the States and play, which is really a lot of the guy's ultimate goal. It's mm -hmm. really difficult to make the NBA from Canada. It just is yeah. what it is. However... With the 905 being here and them having open tryouts, like guys like Aaron Best, who went to Ryerson University, 
made the team. He's one step away from the NBA. So it's not beyond the, the realm of possibility that a Canadian kid who doesn't go to the States, it's not R.J. Barrett, can have an opportunity to play in the NBA. But I think it's great that these uh, NCAA schools are coming up here and competing against the Yorks and, and the University of Toronto's of the world. Now, let me ask you this, too. Um, you know, so you look at the now, now the G League uh, was the D League. And are we saying that it has become necessary simply because when you start looking at the one and dones, like some of these kids, and okay, so let's say uh, Kentucky, okay, so let's say Coach Cow, he's getting the, the, the highest of the highest. Usually you could have, he could have all three or four of those kids, then the next year I'll go to the NBA. And it seems to me, for most of them, like we see the, the, you know, the, the, the absolute blue chip guys, and, and everyone is not that. So they get to the, an NBA team, and it seems to me on a regular basis, they're still kids. They're, they're, they're kids in a couple of ways. Some of them physically. Some of them still have not grown into mm -hmm. their own bodies. Emotionally, they're, they're going against men, pros, guys who sometimes came from Europe. They, they didn't have any uh, confetti when they got drafted. They, they, they're, they're looking to put, as I heard one uh, uh, boxing manager say, it's different when you, you have to work for a living to put groceries on your family's table. Mm. That's a different kind of cat when you're going against it. That's not getting the, the full rides and, the, and, and, and being on national television. The one and done, to me, has lessened the ability for some of the coaches to build programs. Now, for the big ones, they're always going to attract the, uh, the, 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 the big, uh, you know, best basketball players, the McDonald All-Star guys. But I don't know if it's done any great favors, not only for basketball at the NCAA level, but for the NBA. Now, I guess a counterargument could be, well, some of these guys are going in to, to actually make money to look for look after a lot of people. Right. So if you take that away, you're getting back to that that discussion I had with uh, Isaiah Thomas, the Detroit Isaiah Thomas, right. saying, well, the thing about NCAA is they don't understand poverty. They don't understand porn. Mm -hmm. So now you're going to make that guy do what? Another year? For free. For, for, for free? The, then that's a tough decision. While the, the official ladder company of March Madness pays John Calipari another $500,000. So again, you know, that's a, a, a conversation we can have at nauseum until they actually change the rule. Uh, it's obvious collusion between the NCAA and the National Basketball Players Association and, and, and the EMBA. Uh, well, the Players Association want those guys to play. Let's, let's be clear. I, I, I threw them in there, even though I shouldn't have. It's the NBA who makes that decision with the NCAA. Um, they want the players to get paid, the Players Association. They want them to get paid. So the one and done is something that's funny because I find that people find a lot of time to talk about hand-wringing about these young people being mature enough, but we don't get that with hockey. We don't get that with a 13-year-old tennis pro. We don't get any of that. And it might be dependent upon the sport or how people view things or how they've been conditioned or whatever the case might be. But at the end of the day, um, once you become an adult, once you become of age where you can be responsible for yourself, people are going to worry regardless, but there's just this excessive amount of worrying about predominantly young black kids from the inner cities who don't have a lot, who have an opportunity to make a lot in a hurry to take care of their families. What is the issue? So, you know, that, that's something that, that we can drill deep down on, but uh, there's so much more to talk about. And it's 9-11, which I found odd this morning. I forgot about that. What? Today is 9-11. Oh, well, that was okay. Well, then, so we then, should... then the the obvious thing is is where were you when? I can a lot of people probably know this, but I was at another ten fifty when it was called the team. Yeah, they tried a couple of times. They haven't got it right yet. So we're at the team ten fifty. I'm on the air with Paul Romanuk. It's me and Paul Romanuk, and I can see uh, I can see the uh, you know we're just and we're just at this time. Oh, what was it just about 11, 11 minutes before nine o'clock or when mm -hmm. whenever that Somebody, was yeah, in, yeah. in there somewhere. As he, we're signing off because we're national, so we got to hit all the times across, you know, the, the seven, eight, nine, ten stations who are going to go to the next shift. So we got to be out on time. It's network timing. I look up and I see a plane go into a build, but there, there's no sound. No one knows what it is. It's just like the first cameras that go up there. You have to remember, it was only about three weeks beforehand that Air Transat. There were a bunch of goofy like mistakes that they were making. So Paul Roma, Romanuk is talking, and I'm trying to get in an Air Trans hat joke. Now, you have to remember, if I get in a joke at this point, I will go down in history as, like, the worst guy ever. Because I have no idea 
within minutes, it went from what's going on to, I, it's the first time I remember as an adult being scared, being right. being panicked. One of the reasons was, one of the reasons was, a guy that was in one of the towers. Now, many of you watch the Weather Network, Chris May. You know Chris May? Here's what people don't know about Chris May. He was actually dressed up in the penguin outfit in Billy Madison. You know when Billy would go, I see you, Swan. I see you, Swan. <laughs> that was his brother was in the tower. He was one of these uh, uh, accountants. You have to remember how many businesses are in those towers, right. how big those towers are. He had stayed. Now, I didn't know. So then I started getting emotional because I think he's in that building. Mm. And then the reports and what's going on now, it's full-on panic. I'm getting calls back and forth. I'm sure you were from people from the States, people that I knew, people from Texas, you know, people people in buildings in Dallas. They were sending them all home if you were in a government building or one that was of a certain size. And so I start getting upset because I think Chris May's brother is in there. As it turns out, he's one of these young guys that works in the finance, which means, you know, they burn the candles. at both. He stayed so late the night before that he didn't come in that day wow. early. It yeah. saved his life. Well, you know, uh, my son's mother was freaking out because I was supposed to be back home in New York that weekend. And that was a train that I would take from New Jersey, the PATH train from New Jersey into World Trade Center and then transfer onto a New York public transit, metro transit train to go to work. And so she knew I was in New Jersey, and I would stop there. So the World Trade Center train, like all those train systems underneath, um, were gone. And so for eight, nine hours, like there was no phone service. There was nothing. You couldn't get through, and just looking at it was surreal. And there was a sense of fear. I was here. I was here in Toronto. And there was a sense of fear that someone might fly into the CN Tower, sure. and people were afraid. And I was downtown. I lived yeah. downtown. So it was um, something you think about, and uh, it was definitely a horrible moment. And I won't get too deep into the politics of it and the polished tricks of it or whatever the case might be, but uh, that was, a, 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 you know, it's just something that's indelibly, indelibly marked on my memory and in my heart um, because of that day. But uh, I just realized it was 9-11 today, and hopefully we'll talk about some other things that are a little bit more positive, like why I can't stand Chris Collinsworth. But that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> you know. See, I did not see that segue. I mean well, segues I, I, are the kids, much like tricks. Yeah, so. I was gonna say, wow, that is <laughs> that is something. Uh along the lines of Canadian basketball, I, I didn't get a chance to play this the other day, but um Steve Nash, who mm. is the most unlikely story, when I take a look and again, we just talked about the paths it takes that you know, to, to, to get to be just a pro. In Canada, certainly of its time, the first guy I know that even that I was aware of, of what he had done, and I thought it was like the most incredible thing ever, was Leo Routens. For me, that's the one that I knew. I remember, you know, we played at St. Mike's, and, you know, there's this whole thing. Then he goes to, eventually goes to Syracuse, and I'm Jim Beheim. I'm like, oh, my, how can a kid even be on the team? Like, I just I just couldn't fathom that. Then he gets drafted by the 76ers, and I'm just, I'm losing my mind. And now, on a regular basis, I wouldn't know what the, what the actual number is. It's in the hundreds that are playing uh, south of the border. But they're not just making the team anymore, right? as we see. And so for Steve Nash, of really British descent, okay, let's just say. But when is he born in South Africa? He was born in South Africa, British descent. His first sport probably was soccer. Yeah. You know, he was not six foot seven. There was all these things. He's from, lives in Victoria. He goes to Santa Clara. Yeah, the NBA powerhouse, you know, right. <laughs> right? And so now I look at back on it, and he's always been, because the way he holds himself, I'm talking as a human being, some of the things he represents. So he gets up at the uh, Hall of Fame, and so he gives his uh, speech. Here's just a little bit of Steve Nash, property of the National Basketball Association, and I would assume ESPN. Here is Steve Nash. Hyde sent out 30 tapes to colleges around the United States. It was my dream to play Division One basketball. Nobody really liked what they saw on those tapes. <laughs> but but, but what, they, what they couldn't see on the tapes was a relentless obsession and work ethic that would never diminish for 20 plus years. I remember in high school, I went to the Las Vegas Invitational and I thought this could be my chance to be spotted by a college coach. We didn't get many in Victoria, British Columbia, you know, all those years ago. And, we walked into the gym and it was packed and it was Hall of Fame coaches there. Coach K, 
Roy Williams, you know, go down the line, Bobby Knight, Jason Kidd's playing in the gym. I thought, this is my chance, you know, <laughs> this is my chance. Before the little, little, little fellows from British Columbia could get on the court, they all left. So that was my chance out the window. <laughs> I'll have to come another day. Uh, I, I mean, look, look, there's a lot more to, to obviously that. But when you look at Steve Nash, and I talk about certain influences that uh, for a generation that a, a given athlete will have. I mean, if we look at Tiger Woods, I mean, what was that impact on golf itself for those that wanted to and didn't look like the previous uh, golfers, didn't look like what the country club looked like. And here was a guy who was maybe the best we'd ever seen. Is Steve Nash that for Canada? Because I know it's not the same south of the border when you bring up this subject. Stephen John Nash is the most influential basketball player not named Vincent Lamar Carter in Canadian history. Now, Vince is not Canadian, but his impact on basketball in Canada is cannot be understated in the least. You cannot. You can't be. This is supposed to be exaggeration or over, you know, uh, I guess, what do we say? Um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, overreaction Tuesday after overreaction Monday. But you can't overreact to what Steve Nash has brought to this country, not only for just Canadian kids, but for kids who look like Steve in Canada, who, well, I guess, the and here we go again with the condition. Well, a guy like Steve, he doesn't look like he should be able to play basketball. What does that have? How do you, what does a basketball player look like at the end of the day? And Steve Nash is an example of what a basketball player looks like. Jason Kidd's also what a ba Anyone could be a basketball player, but a great basketball player takes all those intangibles that doesn't, and it doesn't matter your geography or your racial background, your religious uh, belief, whatever the case might be. It's about the hard work. It's about taking the opportunities when they present themselves and then going beyond what you think it needs. And here's a guy who was behind Kevin Johnson, who could be a Hall of Famer, Jason Kidd, who's now a Hall of Famer. They're all in the same backcourt. And he had to find his way and navigate that thing. And, like, he didn't become Steve Nash until he's almost 30. Think about this. Until he went back to Phoenix. And that Robert Sarver and that ownership group in Phoenix took a chance on a 30-year-old point guard, which is rare, and changed his life. I mean, again, we talked about elements earlier, all the things with R.J. Barrett and, and how this could be, you know, you need all those variables to make the Duke tournament or the Duke tour work. And the same thing happened in Phoenix. You needed a Mike D'Antoni there to speed up the game, to make it palatable for Nash to do what he does on a regular basis. They made him the core of what they did. And that changed their fortunes. And that changed Steve Nash's fortunes because he came, became a two-time MVP of the league, a most unlikely two-time MVP of the league. What is his strongest quality as a basketball player? If you have Steve Nash on your team, what is the thing that has made him a two-time MVP and a Hall of Famer? Wow, that's tough to drill down to one. I mean, selflessness is one thing, but – uh, he, he said something uh, during, I think, one of the interviews post uh, Hall of Fame speech where he said, I should have shot 20 times a game because he's one of the greatest shooters in NBA history as well. I mean, for having, having a point guard shoot over 50% for his entire career, and most of those shots are like long jumpers, and like he goes to the basket too. But, you know, to have that kind of career that he had and be one of the most proficient shooters in NBA history, you know, tells you that maybe if he had taken another 10, 12 shots a game, who knows? Maybe he'd be, you know, maybe one a couple more MVPs. Although, and we get into these conversations. I don't want to call them arguments because um, most of the time, most people lose against me. Um, <laughs> no, no, we had these discussions about if Nash should have been a two-time MVP. And I actually think the year that Dirk Nowitzki won in 2007 was Nash's best year, and he should have won that year. I thought LeBron should have been the MVP in 2005 and Shaq in 2006 because you look at what he did in taking that team, the Miami Heat, to the finals. And then when he got injured, Dwayne Wade took over and it changed his narrative as well. But, you know, Steve Nash uh, definitely earned everything he got in the NBA. And you have to respect that because yeah. I don't use the word deserve. I think it's the worst word in, in sports and just the, one of the worst words, period. In, 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 in life, right? Yeah, I yeah, mean, who is, who is deserving of mm. anything? Yeah. I mean, you, you know, if someone says – they earned it, then I'm with you. I respect that. I'm with you. But he deserved it. 
I, I, yeah, it's it's just a word that I think people like to throw out there because it makes them feel good, and and it, it's that bias towards that person that's showing the respect and love. But the reality is, he earned it every every inch of what he did. As he said, you know, he goes to Santa Clara, and I mean, I had no idea who he was. I mean, I you know, I'm I'm a college basketball fan, but I obviously wasn't watching a whole bunch of Santa Clara. Uh, their games aren't televised, and if they are, you're you're watching on the internet somewhere. You're to, watching in Santa Clara, probably. <laughs> yeah, you're and, uh, you're not knowing. But I, I, I think it was a, a, just a, a wonderful story, again, talking about the, uh, the influence that, yeah. that one has. Um, also, Can I ask you about yeah. earning? Because my mother raised me, right? And uh, I came bearing gifts. Oh, look at this. You guys have earned some things. This um, is uh, you know, I, unexpected. I, I, don't know what, I don't know what size you have. So, uh, you know, I'm pulling them out. Um, courtesy of my guys over at... Uh, uh, Ah, loyal to a T. Um, we have some T-shirts from Full Court Twenty One Canada. Very my nice. basketball tournament. Uh, now, when that's coming up soon. No, it? we actually had the the World oh, Finals no. in August because I wasn't around. We were on the right. show. That's right. right. So um, I got a military green one. It's you know Look very at that. nicely done. Um, oh, those oh, are good. I like that. One. I like the black pocket tee because you like the pocket yeah, tee. Yeah, you like I the do. pocket tee. I do. And on the back it says, "Commit, compete, conquer." There you go. One of our slogans. But uh, I came bearing gifts for uh, you and the staff here. Uh, so, you know, like I said, uh, well, thank we'll talk you about for that. that later. But uh, Full Court 21 Canada, the world's most unique basketball tournament. Uh, Canada has gone back-to-back, all-world champions. So applaud that, yeah, along with go. Steve Nash. Okay. I mean, yep. we want to piggyback on Steve Nash if we could. So segues, like you said, are for, for kids <laughs> as well as tricks. Are. So we're going to have that. You. You want to talk about trick shots. I'm going to show you something. So we're going to throw some throwback here. The year was 1978, mm-hmm. and the All-Star Game, I believe, was in Atlanta that year. And they did, and and again, going back, when you start talking about the mid-'70s, uh, you know, as a kid, I mean, I'm 55, so, you know, as I'm, I'm looking at the slam dunk, and especially in Canada, like I'd never seen it before. Like the, the slam dunk to me was I just couldn't believe people were doing it. And it became eventually sort of the thing for for the NBA All-Star game, you know, in its infancy. You know, when you saw, like, see, Dominique to me, when I saw what he did then, I just couldn't believe a human, you know, the up and down the lay. And then I just could not believe that someone could do that. And it was the most exciting thing I'd seen. Back in 1978, there still was this kind of weird feeling. And I would say... I don't know if it's it's necessarily a racial line, but it was like how much of the street ball, how much of the stuff that exists out there are we actually going to implement into the NBA game? Because the NBA game in 1978, their finals here in Canada, they were on tape delay. They were on the tape delay in the States. Yeah. It was actually one of the first NBA finals I watched on a little 13-inch black and white TV underneath my sheets because I had to go to school the next day because they came on at 11.35 after your Lake local news. Unbelievable. On tape delay. See, people, people, kids, they go, what are you talking about? Why wouldn't it be live? Because the NBA was looked at as a league of some of it, they thought there was a little bit of uh, degenerates uh, part of it. Yeah. You know, I, I heard whispers of, oh, yeah, the, the weed smoking or marijuana. There was a, oh, they were doing something. I mean, yeah. in the 70s. You in know, the 70s, it was the 70s, right? Coke was, was you know, passed around like party favors. But, it was a different, the way people looked at cocaine in the 70s was more recreational. It was more like weed to them. They didn't think of it as a, a drug that would lead to something worse or, or you know, uh, lead you to rehab. It's just like, it was one of those things you did. A party better. favor. Yeah, it really was. Yes. And so what I'm going to show you now is, is very interesting because I didn't realize it existed because it probably wasn't even shown in Canada. They played the game horse. Mm-hmm. They play horse, which many of us have played beforehand, and they have the Iceman and Pistol Pete. Yeah. So Pistol Pete is still, you know, with the Jazz at this point. The late Pete Maravich. The late Pete Maravich. Yeah. Uh, you know, we played some some clips of his uh, a couple of months ago, and people said it doesn't look it doesn't look real. He he was. He was uh, magic other, before magic. Otherworldly, yeah. I guess, is, you know, and if you, you know, for those that saw him play at LSU, I mean, so against George Gervin, so people getting their heads around, you know, San Antonio at the time. But this is a moment that I had not seen before. But you realize, you talk about pre-magic, this is magical. If you're a basketball fan, watch this. Again, I assume property the NBA, 
but man, oh man, Pete Maravich, George Gervin, horse, 1978. Today we have Pistol Pete Maravich, a former NCAA and NBA scoring champion against George Gervin, the current scoring champion in the league. And so to lead away, George Gervin of the San Antonio Spurs has won the toss and he fires up a jumper off the glass. And the pistol had too much on him. Jump shot. Gervin, a spectacular player, an over 50% shooter from the backcourt. All right, out of bounds. Now Two Pistol behind. Pete. Off the backboard, straight out. Going to go into his bag of tricks, and he has got a lot of them. They say of George Gervin, he can shoot over just about any guard in the league, and anyone he can, he can drive around. No step, straight out. Straight up. All right, sit down. Make a layup. Pistol's going to take it easy here. Off the backboard. Pistol can make that ball talk, I think. George wasn't expecting all this sitting down, I don't think. <laughs> can you believe, actually, though, they're doing this? Yeah, of course. I mean, this is great. I mean, I, I, you know, I, as, as an older guy, when I go out to the court and I see young guys shooting around, you know, I tell them, I'll play horse. And if, you know what? If you beat me, if you beat me, I'll give you a prize. <laughs> but if not, as the rules go, you owe an old guy 10 push-ups. So I leave a lot of bodies on the court. A lot of bodies. Oh, yeah. Bob. And that's the kind of stuff. He'd do that in a game. Yeah. He'd do that in a game. Used that against Bob McAdoo and gave the big fellow a lot of problems. But see, when you don't practice it, because George Gervin... Anyway, this again. Go, you can go and watch this. Uh, it's courtesy of NBA TV. It goes on, but George Gervin. Do you think because of the time, the era that he played? It's pre-internet. It's pre-sports radio, sports television, pre a lot of things. Is is he underrated in terms of how good he was? Do you think? No, I mean it's just a matter of the time. You know, he was one of my position coaches. When I tried out in San Antonio, really, I didn't know that. That's cool. Sent me home. I'll send you an article that I wrote about trying out as an unrestricted free agent, uh, going to a camp uh, in San Antonio. I used to uh, work at the University of Texas San Antonio in the summer. It'd be 80 degrees, 90 degrees Fahrenheit at like 8 o'clock in the morning. Oh, it's it's Mexico. I mean, yeah. it really, yeah. if you go down there, it's but Mexico. I tried my best to keep up with a new signee, a guy they had traded for uh, by the name of uh, Dennis Keith Rodman. Oh. <laughs> that was his first year there. Wow. And that was my first mistake. Uh, although I did have a little list. I had a, a piece of paper that had some things that I could do to make sure I stayed in camp, which was fake low, go high, throw the ball inside to David Robinson. Fake high, go low, throw the ball inside to David <laughs> Robinson. So those are on the top of the list, and I did pretty well with that part. But, you know, we can talk about the article later uh, for this uh, blog that I write for called Breast Basketball. And my actually, the uh, blog that I write, The Open Run on my hat. The Open Run. There you go. So I'm up here just doing so much I'm so flagrant. I'm sorry, Mike. You no, talk about all these uh, companies I'm working with. No, everything. that's good, too, because uh, there was a, a while ago uh, when I wanted to get you in, I think it might have been uh, maybe even last fall, too, where you had gone and you'd spoke, I think, at, at Big Ten schools. Yeah, doing uh, speaking engagements on hip-hop and education as I created and taught the world's first university-accredited course on hip-hop culture at the University of Massachusetts Amherst uh, called Edutainment, the Impact of Hip-Hop in American Culture. So uh, I've been... Uh, Extremely blessed to do that and uh, trying to get that geared up again for the 2018-2019 school year. It's funny that you bring that up because when you start talking about the impact socially, uh, when you look at what a lot of rap is about, a lot of people say, like myself, living in the suburbs, swimming in my pool. I don't know what they're talking about. I, I, I'm like, I, I don't relate to it. But that's just saying it's not only a generational thing, but has wrapped transcended just an urban message? I think the answer is yes. It always has. So, brings up where there's this guy called DMO. Uh, just a regular guy from what I can understand. He calls himself DMO the Real. He sings about something, well, or raps about something, that is probably one of the biggest uh, social conversations that we have currently 
and I mean it doesn't matter what part of the world, when you start talking about mental illness, mm. when you start talking about depression, the last thing I thought I would see is a white guy rapping in his car, just kind of, you know, nonchalant, puts, a, puts on the music, puts on his beat, so to speak, and starts singing about something that might be the most relevant issue of our time. I just want you to show this, once again, property of DMO. This is something that now has well over a million hits. I want to know what you think of this. Hey, what's going on? I wrote something for y'all. Check it out for me, please. It means a lot. I wake up every day and I just want to be happy, but my brain does not cooperate. It's honestly tragic. Living with depression ain't what most people think I try so motherfucking hard but I'm still on the brink Things can seem perfect but in my head nothing's working I think that I need a surgeon to cut me open Observe it, please tell me what is wrong with me Cause I don't understand Used to hide these problems behind drugs Now I'm a different man Stop drinking and dropping them Diagnosing my problems Now I know the issue but no idea how to stop them It's the craziest thing Cause I can see it when it happens But I can't stop these feelings from racing in and then crashing And I can feel the collision all the way down in my stomach Like I got punched in the gut And there ain't no running from it I could be up at the one thing happened, I plummet They tell me take my meds and calm down But I don't like feeling nothing Now let me tell y'all folks something I've been like this my whole life Been trying to hide it and fight it That shit ain't go right My methods of coping was just me drinking and smoking Anything I could take, I'd pop it in and keep going But that was just me not knowing that I was making it worse If I had stayed on that path, I'd probably be in the hearse Cause I was feeling so cursed Nothing ever went my way And nothing but negative thoughts was present in my brain Laying down at night, but ain't no sleep coming my way my brain won't shut the fuck up it's been doing this all day do you know what it's like to have to fight with yourself trying to seem happy without liking yourself it all could be over just by blasting yourself But I ain't the one to give up in this fight, I need help See with this problem at hand, it's hard to talk to your friends You don't want someone to judge you and look at you different So I meet paper with pen, I open up in these notes It's really all I can do to get the words on my throat And I ain't looking for someone to feel sorry for me, nah I'm just trying to explain all this pain I got inside When all you taught is you ain't good enough when you growing up It makes it hard to see you good enough when you growing up Fake it till you make it, that's what everybody say to do So if the shoe fits, I might as well wear it too See, I'm the funny guy, cracking jokes, deflecting attention Cause I don't want nobody noticing that my soul is missing And if you feeling I'm distant, you probably right People ask what's wrong, I say nothing, I'll be alright and I continue to fight It's an everyday struggle like I'm at war with myself When my emotions start to bubble, people telling me my lyrics are dope I'm staying humble, I'm just writing what I'm feeling Trying to help people that struggle, if you feeling what I'm saying, keep your head up And if you need someone to talk to, hit my line up Please do not ever give up until your time's up Things will get better, it's just gonna take some time, bruh Thank you that to me is uh, one of the most powerful things I think I've ever seen uh, of late. Certainly when it comes to something that's uh, musical, something that's relevant, something that is happening uh, for the here and today. So I was uh, almost speechless the first time I saw that and knowing that, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago we had, uh, I had a, a school, head, school uh, friend in uh, and from my childhood mm. and I've known her for over 50 years. I had no idea she suffered from that, started drinking at nine, self-medicating, uh, dealing with uh, depression and mental illness and she came on and talked about that story. She had seen this as well and uh, she's a person of faith, so mm. sometimes the language uh, wasn't, but it was, it was, as they say, as he says, it's the real. What do you make of that? Is that, is that something to you that when you look at the the genesis of maybe where rap came from. Mm. Should this be surprising? No, because it's always been there. Don't push me because I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. Uh, ha, 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 ha. Melvin Glover. Uh, Grandmaster Melly Mel from uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five uh, back in 1982. You know, and, and that people are surprised at, oh, it's a, a white guy. Don't be surprised by that, Mike. Because one of the, the first big rap hit ever, Rapper's Delight, um, Wonder Mike comes out and says, now I am Wonder Mike and I'd like to say hello to the black, the white, the red, and the brown, the purple, and yellow. So right away, there's a disparity between the perception and the reality of rap. Rap was always inclusive. 
He's speaking to everyone, no matter what you look like, right? And so it shouldn't be a surprise because everyone has issues. Everyone has problems. How we deal with those problems or how those problems are, are dealt with uh, is something that, you know, uh, can be a bone of contention. You know, during the crack era, um, people who are on crack, <clears throat> people who are on crack were seen as criminals. But now during the opioid crisis, now it's a mental health issue. It's always been a mental health issue. It's always been a health issue, um, whether it be crack or or opioids, but now that we see the complexion of those who are suffering from these afflictions and addictions um, changing, because primarily crack was seen as a black drug, mm-hmm. and opioid crisis because it's out in the suburbs, you know, and in an area where more rap music is purchased than any other area in the world, but you know, so there's some relation, whether it be voyeuristic or not. Um, the opioid crisis moved out of the inner city. Where it was when it when it was in the inner city, it wasn't a problem. Now the sudden it's in the suburbs and in the country and on rural roads and, and routes like that. Now it's a an epidemic. It's a crisis. We need to solve this crisis. So again, um, that becomes a political issue and also a, a matter of how certain things are manicured and massaged in the media. And you know, to go back to the wise words of Wonder Mike, there's always been a part. Of, of whether you talk about, like, these kids in these communities, they don't want, you know, as much as you hear them talk about, yeah, I'm in the hood. I'm the, they don't want that. They don't live in the hood anymore. Once they start making money, they move out of the hood because the same crime element you fear, I fear too. So, again, why these young people who are writing about stories and making stories up are held to a different standard than a Stephen King who... He, I don't have a career. I know, I'm sure he doesn't have a deranged dog somewhere. You know, when was the last time that George Lucas went to the Dagobah system? I don't know. He's never been there. You can write a story and it be a story, but somehow these kids are obligated to somehow that everything they write has to be what they actually lived, and that's not always true. They're storytellers. They're songwriters, and I think sometimes we get this misconception about that. But to go back to the mental health part of it. And this has always been a part of it. Mind tra- playing tricks on me by the ghetto boys. You know, they're talking about being deluded. So these are things that oftentimes in those communities of color that didn't get, like when shootings happen in those communities, they don't get grief counseling. Just shake it off and keep it moving. But they're suffering from a lot of the same things as well. And I think that sometimes we spend a lot of time trying to create these lines of delineation between these young people of different backgrounds when in actuality, the problem is real across the board. It's how it's dealt with and how we deal with it as individuals. Because if you haven't been given encouragement to speak to someone, or if you've been told all your life, you know, suck it up, you're a man. Like, there are a lot of things that go on there. There's a, a sociopathy to it that, that can't just be explained through uh, ge- geography or race. That uh, there's a lot going on there, and so. Well, well, you know, it's interesting. You talked about the the storyteller aspect of it because. I mean that's that's a big part of what a, a lot of music is. You're you know you 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 know it, it doesn't matter what I mean. You look at Rush, uh, they they probably weren't riding Pegasus or going up and mm-hmm. by touring the snow. Oh, dog. they were riding pe- and, well, Pegasus, yeah, a different kind, <laughs> yeah, right? a different kind. But I said the the one thing that I that I think was at least you know in my age group when when uh, you know I'm in uh, probably the latter part of high school, uh, you know, and run DMC and mm. you know. I had never heard anyone really, you know, because this whole thing about keeping it real wasn't wasn't a rock thing. I mean, the Rolling Stones weren't getting going. Oh yeah, we're the Rolling Stones, and you know, they 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 didn't say their name in their songs. It was something that was different, but that was okay too. And I think that it when you look at what rap is, and I told you that uh, Royce to Five Nine had come in. I didn't know who he was obviously before he, he came in the studio, and I watched his at that time his latest video where he goes on and he basically talks about all these things he felt in his life he had failed at mm. this this was not this was not the, the pretty side of things this was him bearing his soul about being a terrible father being a, a terrible husband um, not being as he as he put it probably the kind of christian man that he maybe wanted to be at least because i was important to him and that he had underachieved and i he sits on the show and and I basically say to him, I said, you know, number one, you're telling me, you're telling me that you're a failure or were a failure. 
This is the oldest, the, what you're doing is the oldest form of storytelling we've had since uh, the cavemen were putting logs together and creating fire. Mm. It, is, it, is, it is storytelling that is a very personal thing, which I think, in a lot of ways, and people might want to argue country music now you want to argue, <laughs> but I'm telling you, <laughs> uh, no, one, no one really bared their soul like that until we started hearing about people singing where they lived. Mm-hmm. Where there, where there, where there, there was only a mother. There was no father, mm-hmm. or or maybe it was the oldest brother or the oldest sister. Rock music and and, and popular music to, to that point in the seventies, I don't think really addressed those kinds of things the way rap did. When you're fighting for public space, and when I say fighting for public space, there's a reason why you say your name. That's the reason why you draw graffiti on a wall or on a subway train so that people can see your name throughout the city that you put them on the wall, recognize me, I'm here, when you've been marginalized and um, basically invisible to many people unless they want to use you as cannon fodder for a political campaign or for the rise in police, uh, the police state or the prison industrial complex, that this fight for public space and the fight for having your voice being heard is the reason why you spell your name and you say your name in a song because that song can go on forever and someone's going to walk with that and take that around the world. So that's part of that thing. And when you talk about, you know, um, Roy saying like he's bearing his soul and all these things, this is really what rap has always been. I mean, if you think about it, like, you know, there's, it's, you can have parties, you can have fun, but there's always a story to be told. And I think that sometimes when you have an opportunity and a platform to tell your story, um, whether it be, you know, I, I can't fault guys who try to do it for making money. A lot of people make movies for, like your guy Steven Seagal. You know, that Oscar Award winning actor. What are you talking Steven, about? He's the greatest fighter of all time. Steven knows what his lane is, right? And he makes movies to that. And that's fine. He shouldn't have to be obligated to make good will hunting. That's not Steven Seagal. It's the same thing for some of these guys who rap today. It's not the same thing. You know, um, do you need an acceptance more than, let's say, if, if there's a bunch of bands in it today, and again, I'm going back probably to, to the 80s, not so much now, but uh, no one really had a, had a, a turf. There wasn't, there wasn't uh, a, a phrase that I'd say that you'd see on much music or MTV where whether another band, whether you are accepted or not, but I felt it was more territorial. Um, when it came to rap music, where you start hearing about East Coast and West Coast, where you start talking about whether the guy was legit or had street cred. So I always wondered, you know, when when the Beastie Boys come out. So I'm I'm at Ryerson. I'm I'm at university. You know, to party. I'm listening to it, and to me, well, I, first of all, I thought it was stupid. Like I thought it was like it didn't make any sense to me. Mm. But I thought within that community, as they grow, as as musically, and if you see them play actually live music they were very very talented and insanely talented but were they accepted yeah they were a punk rock group originally and a lot of the the ethos and and kind of the aesthetic of early rap music came from the idea of punk rock if you think about even the ascension of 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 rap music from you know the bronx and in uptown and going downtown was brought a lot of it uh credit to deborah harry really from blondie who you know took the art guys and a lot of the graffiti guys and took some of the music and the aesthetic of rap music and hip hop culture to the Roxy, to Studio Fifty Four, to CBGBs uh, in the Lower East Side in New York. Um, I feel like I'm teaching my class right now. No, this is good. Trust and, me, and, uh, we and, we and, need this. You know, if you guys want to get in the cl- no, let me stop. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna stop anyway. Um, a lot of that is accredited to her because she was able to open up some eyes to this burgeoning subculture at the time called hip hop culture. And the music and the art and the fashion of it and the style and the aesthetic was driven by, you know, punk rock was about like F to man. And so was rap music, just in a different way. So there was some kinship there, right? And, and that's why it was easy for her to make that. that so movie. Rapture, is that, you're saying, was that a connection with that? Oh, Deborah know? Harry was definitely influential in that yeah, way. Yeah. Um, you know, she wasn't the greatest rapper in the world. No. But that, even if you look at that video um, from the very beginning, when you see the guy in the, uh, Top hat and tails, you know, the outside looking in, it looks into this kind of, here's Andy Warhol, there's Jean-Michel Basquiat, like that whole scene in the 80s in New York, that was that scene. And then she walks outside and you see graffiti and you see all these people that look like the village people or Parliament Funkadelic or, or, or you know, African Bambada and the Soul Sonic Force. And there's this other aesthetic and they coexist in the same space. 
And that's really what the video was talking about, is that these things can all coexist and be prominent and be, you know, what they are to whoever it is. Um, and, and still be fine with that. And I think that's a lot of what she was saying with that video. And I think that a lot of times we spend a lot, a, a great deal of time trying to put things in the boxes. And that's what happens with media. That's what happens when you allow media to kind of dictate and control the narrative as opposed to the narrative creating itself and unfolding the way the world will allow it to unfold. Do you think you're more New Yorker than you are anything else? Are you a, a New Yorker at heart? What would you? How would am, you describe I'm yourself? I'm a global citizen, sir. <laughs> I am a global yeah, citizen. Yeah, yeah. I really am. I, I feel like anywhere I stop and I land, I can put my toes 10 deep in the sand and make it happen. Uh, you can call that ego. I call it supreme confidence. But I've done that. Like My history and my life have, have spoken to that. And so wherever I go, I know that I'm going to make it happen. So, you know, um, New York will always be in my heart. But I love Toronto. I love being here. I love being able to create here and, and being able to to uh, enhance. Like, my whole goal with everything is to leave whatever place I go to better than it was when I got here. Is that, you know, kind of, you know, highbrow? Absolutely. But, you know, go big or go home. Well, I think you got to set the bar high, though, as a human being. And I, I know you do. You work at it. You, you, do, you do things because, um, look, you're a, you're a great businessman, but that's not, that's not truly, at least from my opinion, that's not what motivates you. You, you pay it forward. You give back because, again, that's, that's setting the bar. I think you, you're, you're that way as a dad. I think you're that way as a dad. And, and I think that those are the kinds of things that it makes our communities better. If you had just stayed in New York or stayed in Houston, it does. We, we it's our loss. It's it, our loss here. Well, I don't know if I was destined to do that. And my GoFundMe account, uh, sponsored by Michael Johnson. <laughs> no, <stop. laughs> no, no. Um, I appreciate the praise, man. It's you know, at the, the end of the day, um, just trying to be a better person each and every day, and trying to contribute something positive to the world. Um, whether it be you know coming up here and and and, and trying to fill the mighty big shoes of Dave. Mighty big shoes. Dave Bastel, a human. I, I don't even want to, you know what? Were you going to say Dave, cheap because he's very cheap? No, Dave oh, was nice. Gonna... I didn't know that Dave was cheap. Though. Oh, boy. I can't believe he's not charging you rent for sitting in that chair. Well, he might. He'll be he watching might, this I might, say, I might get an invoice <laughs> later on today, so you never know. But uh, I do want to talk about something uh, New York that is very New York, uh, something that my son was talking about years ago. Rucker Park. Mm-hmm. In the world of basketball, which a lot of people see as their son goes to high school, he's a senior, then, then now it seems it's not necessarily just to, uh, to uh, a, a big-time school. There's a lot of prep schools. There's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of different ways. Rucker Park, what is it responsible for? In, in the basketball world, what is – how do you – how do you quantify or qualify Rucker Park? It what is, is it? It is the mecca of playground basketball. We don't call it street basketball because that's a pejorative. Um, the idea that street is somehow lesser than any other type of basketball. Playground basketball is as much an important part of basketball and how we see it professionally, how we see it in as many incarnations, whether it be the Big Three or Full Court 21 or whatever the case might be, um, NCAA basketball is a big part of why it is successful. Um, so it is the the mecca of playground basketball. You know, the history of it from Mr. Holcomb Rucker um, being a person who was responsible in, in, in this community and making the community better and giving these young people an outlet. Now, Rucker Park expression. geographically is where? It's not Harlem, is it? It is actually in Harlem. It is Harlem, um, okay. It is Harlem. Um, it is the old polo grounds where the polo grounds, um, the, the, the old... New York Giants yeah. used to play. The Polo Ground Projects are right there. And 155th and, and Frederick Douglass or 155th and 8th Avenue in New York City is the the corner where the current... Because the Rutgers has been in a couple of different places in Harlem, right? Um, but you're up in Sugar Hill area um, and you're looking at 155th and you're right across from Yankee Stadium. Like you go across the bridge and you're in the Bronx and there's Yankee Stadium. So there's a lot going on there. But uh, there's a place, uh, and when you go and you play in the Rucker, if you have an opportunity, it's now the EBC. Uh, Shouts out to uh, the late, great Greg Marius, who uh, took over the Rucker and changed it to the Entertainers Basketball Classic, or EBC. Um, passed away not too long ago. Um, when I was playing in the Rucker, and it was called the EBC, um, 
I got a nickname. And when you get your nickname, or we call it birth certificate, um, Duke Tango, who was once one of the uh, announcers there, initially gave me the nickname of Blade. And I'm like, nah, I don't like that because people can like, oh, he's the, you know, he's the gay Blade. And I'm like, yeah. no, nothing against gay people <laughs> yeah. at all. No, I just, yeah, at the time, I was like, yeah, it's too yeah. easy to make jokes about yeah. it, right? Um, for basketball, whatever. And um, well, there's gonna be, let's face it, there's gonna be a lot of talk while you're playing the game. Yeah, 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 I mean, there, yeah. there's always talk. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about from the crowd. Like, oh. the crowd is, you have to understand, when you see 10,000 people watching you play an outdoor basketball game that's not NCAA or NBA sanctioned, that's real. <laughs> and we were playing in championship games. There were five, ten thousand 10,000 people outside watching us play. So eventually, I'm playing a game, and, and uh, somebody calls me Danny Roman. Samuel L. Jackson from that movie with, <laughs> with um, what's the name? My guy from House of Cards, Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey. Huh? So Kevin Spacey and, and Samuel L. Jackson are in this movie <laughs> called The Negotiator. And they call, start yeah, calling me yeah. Danny Roman. Yeah. And then it just turns into The Negotiator. He negotiates the lane for two points and negotiates with the ref for a foul call. He negotiates with the crowd for some love, and I became The Negotiator. Uh, not bad. I don't, so I'm not hating that. was my birth certificate, and so... You know that is, uh, yeah. You know, I had some pretty good games to the Rucker, and uh, I enjoyed my experience there. And to be a part of that history, for, with everyone from like, you know, of course, one of my favorite, my favorite player of all time, is Julius Winfield Irvin the second. Okay, and um, because he was so elegant as a player, he's the most elegant guy to ever lace him up. Not only on the court, but his elegance off the court. You know, and this is one of the first times for young people in the community who saw a basketball player to see a guy who can handle himself in a world that it historically eliminated your voice and your your image from that. For, for him to stand toe to toe and have these conversations and be so eloquent and, and, and represent you in that way made me proud to see like and in the seventies I got I had a lot of that. Muhammad Ali, Julius Irving, like you know, growing up with that. So to take that and say, I can do those same things in my own way, uh, he was a big influence on me, and he's obviously one of the greatest players who ever played the Rucker. He certainly is. And if you wanted to know what it looks like, they uh, there were some pro players. This was Tom Hoover, Tom I think. Tom played, played for, for the, the Knicks. Played for the Knicks. When they heard the name, you, again, this is in the day, right? So you said a gay blade. And you didn't want something that was not manly sounding in that time. It's oh, just, it's, no, it wasn't even about manly sound. It was just like it didn't fit you. you didn't, like they used to call Julius Irving the hawk or the, you know, or the claw, right? The claw, which is quite uh, Leonard's nickname now. Yeah. It's odd, but he didn't like the claw. You know? But, but and you've got to have something that's got, you know. So the name, you. the name Julius well, yeah, that's one too. So, but. so, so he. Let's go back. This is in the seventies. This is uh, this is unbelievable stuff. If you and and again, it's interesting that you, the way that you put it about his eloquence. There was a, a, a dignity. There was a, there was a, a high level of style, but it was also equaled to the man off the court. Mm. This is Rucker Park. This is Big Will's big influence on his life and a lot of people. Julius Irving. You played him the first game, and they kept saying, you wait till Julius gets here. You wait till Julius, and I'm like, who's Julius? I'm in the NBA, but I care about Julius. Tom Hoover had never heard of him, but soon enough, the kid named Julius was doing things that no one at the Rucker would ever forget. At the baseline, he dunks, and the guy takes the ball out to throw it the length of the court for a fast break. He jumps up in the air and catches the ball and throws it down. Charlie Scott shot a long shot, and Julius came, took it out of the air, and dunked it. I took it right there. I said, I don't, I don't need to see anything else. This was it. People here in Harlem, they really know good basketball. And, uh, you know, if you, if you do something real nice, you know, they show their appreciation. He came down one time, I had the angle on him. He dunked the ball so bad, the ball hit me in the top of the head. My teeth fell out on the ground. The crowd roared. I had scrambled to grab him off the ground and put him back in my mouth. That helped build his reputation. There was just one uh, thing left for Julius to earn at the Rucker. They would call him different names, uh, Little Hawk. He went over to the announcer and said, I'm not the Little Hawk. That's Connie Hawk. 
So then they call him the claw. Oh, man, the claw's got the ball going. I was like, I'm thinking, I wonder who he's talking about. He's calling me the claw. I didn't want to be the claw. They would call him all sorts of names. Oh, what a rebound by Black Moses. Black Moses, what are you talking about? <laughs> he said, if you want to call me anything, call me the doctor. So you know, they said, well, the doctor is operating tonight. <laughs> all of a sudden, Dr. J, Dr. J, Dr. J. Who's your favorite basketball player? Dr. J. Why? All his moves he do. That's why. Behind me, up on the roof, is a school. They were all on the roof. He drew the greatest Look at that. crowd Look in the it. history of the Rucker Pro League. You had people up in the trees, sitting on branches. Everywhere you looked around, there were people. It wasn't even standing room only. People could not see enough of the game. We had people on the bridges. This is where... That is, uh, that's a crazy story. I know we're a little tight for time, but uh, just just looking at that influence. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, no the, the look of... And again, because I was one of those kids mm. where my jaw's hitting the ground, my eyes are really big, and, you know, the big famous one, they show him swooping underneath when he's actually with the pros. Of course, yeah. That's 1982 I, finals against the Los Angeles Lakers, beating Mark Landsberger, baselining, shooting that in Kareem's face. It's a good... So you kind of remember it then? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, and again, you know, I look at certain athletes in their sports... And, and what they meant to the sport and what they meant to the people. And very often it's not just because you were a good athlete. In fact, I think that, you know, you can go through Hall of Famers and, and, and there's obviously they're in the Hall for, for a reason. But, but in given sports, they're like ambassadors. They're like, they're like diplomats. They're, they're, they're almost royalty. I've always said that about Jean Beliveau in Montreal. Mm. And when he was there with his wife, um, you know, the, the white hair, and he really looked like a dignitary. Mm. I would put Julie Serving in that category he for is. his sport. He carried two leagues. He carried the ABA, and when they made the transition to the NBA, and the NBA was on the verge of bankruptcy and about to go under. And Julius Irving was the infusion they needed uh, going toward the uh, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird era, which came a couple of years after they did the merger in 76. And they were the three guys who carried the league, but Julius Irving had the responsibility, and he was the type of person who could handle that responsibility and carrying the ABA until its last days, and then into the NBA, and out of the dark ages, and into the age of David Stern, and bringing back the dunk contest, and understanding the entertainment value of um, merging this so-called street ball, or this play ball ground basketball um, style, the up-tempo style, into kind of stayed, you know, very fundamentally sound, uh, basketball of the NBA. And when you merge those, you now have this incredible product that you can see stars like LeBron, Raymond James, or Wardell Stephen Curry Jr. Uh, doing their things in the National Basketball Association right now. So we're, we're going to call it a day because these, these shows always go too fast. Eventually we think it's going to be two hours. More, more on that. But uh, when you come back, uh, we'll talk about Raptors. We'll talk about Kawhi. We'll talk about... Uh, I'm mad at you. You're mad at me. I am. Why? Because I wanted to talk to you about Max Pacioretty. I know you want to get. I okay. wanted to talk to you about Oscar De La Hoya and saying he's going to run for president and he's dead serious. The Golden Boy and this whole Serena thing. Like there's and then you see there's so much. So so we'll, we'll, we can carry that over. Aaron Rodgers. I I don't have any oh. disrespect for Aaron Rodgers. I have a disrespect for the people who are equating the first game of the NFL season in 2018 and his comeback to Willis Reed in Game 7 of the NBA Finals against Wilt, Jerry West, and Elgin Baylor. It's a little bit different. <laughs> Stop it. Yeah, it is. It is, uh, again, it was against the Bears. So yeah, I don't react to Monday and Tuesday. That, that's the way it is. But, okay, your, your quick feelings, because the, the Patch Ready story is going to be over. So so what is your take on, on, on him going to Las Vegas? It's not. A, I love Las Vegas. I'm glad that, you know, an expansion team went to the Finals, and I wanted them to win. I really wanted them to win the first year. But it's not even so much about Max as it is about the management of the Montreal Canadiens. Let's be clear. This has happened on several occasions with several of those stars. P.K. Subban being one of them and now Pacioretty. Who's next, Shea Weber? I'm just saying. 
Who's next? Well, if you want to pick up that term, I, I think if you're Carey Price, though, you you got to be looking oh, over Carey, your shoulder. They're, they're, you know, Carey Price is not going anywhere. Oh, I don't know about that. You see, and that's the whole thing. But, I don't know about you know, that. Somebody's saying that, you know, obviously, you know, the Molson family and, 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 and um, Bergeron have said that, you know, there was a trade that was requested. Max's people are saying there was no trade requested. So who are you going to believe? Who are you going to believe? The front office? who've done all they can do to get these guys out of, you know, this was not going to end well, just like PK's situation. Even though some people said, you know, PK gave $10 million to the, the children's hospital there uh, to, to curry favor with the front office to say, look, I want to be here, as opposed to looking at that like that was just something he did because he wanted to do that. He's a part of the community, so he was showing he wanted to be there anyway, and they still traded him, right? And you see him go on to greater success and what has Montreal done in the past five years crickets much to the joy of most of us on this show and <laughs> uh and uh rubbing in the faces of uh, our poor uh, Montreal Canadian fans but uh suck on it really that, that's what I'm saying <laughs> uh thanks so much well thanks, we, sir you're gonna come in again soon Absolutely. Uh, we gotta get that going because I do want to talk about uh this uh, NBA season and how it could be you know uh, you know essentially shaping up in the east because uh, they were curious about uh you know what we think uh Kawhi Leonard will do we're going to look at a, a Boston Celtic team what is that going to look like uh who's improved in the east is it guaranteed that you're going to have a, a raptor team that's going to a conference final i'd be careful with that but we will talk about those things maybe we'll do a little uh little college football a little later on because I know we, we talked about it today because it's and some interesting stories. I can't stories. believe talking to you with that hat on. But. Yeah, well, I, I wear it because I like it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, <laughs> and, and look, they got a hard lesson in uh, Mesa, uh, Arizona uh, last week against uh, Jimbo Fisher and that Arizona State team. Uh, that And I don't think that was a huge shock, to be honest. Mm. Um, we, because we, we never talked about the the, uh, the Nick Saban sort of interview that he did. I don't know if you saw that. Oh, with uh, Maria Taylor. With Maria Taylor, which Absolutely. I thought, I thought she was, and I, I wrote to her, I said, uh, you know, in terms of being a professional, that was top marks. I mean, yeah. the way that she handled herself was absolutely, I, I think, uh, as well as I've seen anybody, because uh, that is a very powerful man who acted very poorly. And it was like, it just rolled off her and she continued on. And she never, there wasn't anything disparaging afterwards. It was just straight ahead. And I got to tell you, even from my perspective, that is hard to do. Didn't Saban, did didn't Saban apologize the next day? I'm not, I'm not absolving him of his actions. And I think this this is something we see all the time, that in the heat of the moment, in the heat of the situation, people react. They don't necessarily always respond. Reaction is emotionally based. Response is thought based. So when you have a chance to take a breath and think about your actions or think about it before you act, there's a response. In the moment of it, he knew the question was going to come. So maybe there was some thought, and it was premeditated in, this, in the sense that he was just frustrated and he didn't want to hear it anymore. But guess what? You are Nick Saban. You do have two quarterbacks. You are playing them in a platoon system. There's going to be questions about who you chose and who you're going to choose for the next game. That's just a part of the – until you say, this guy's my guy, that's it. So for him not to understand that, for him to been, have been in coaching at that level for as long as he's been – and for him to respond or react to a question like that was a bit disappointing. I thought it was unacceptable, to be honest. The Greg way, Popovich the way, does it too, but in a different way. But, but in, in a different way, you know. And again, as pros, there's other things. There's a there's a scrutiny that goes on that you you know you you understand as professionals. It's sort of like. You remember that question that uh, Roy Williams was asked just after uh, after he wins the championship? That gummit. Yeah, and he says um, he goes. I know there's a guy out there who's asking you to tell ask me that question, but it's uh, I don't give a shit. And but but that was direct. It wasn't at her. He's he's talking to the truck at this point. Mm. I I had no problem with him doing that. Mm. But if you're uh, Nick Saban, because he said you know I'm not going to disparage like or or or, or uh, you know one of my you know throw one quarterback underneath the, the right the well, bus. She, she never asked that. Yeah. She never came across That's that why I said way. He was, he it was already, his buildup. He already he had yes. already premeditated yeah. what he was going to say because he knew that, that question was going to arise. And then, therefore, upon regrouping yourself as a professional, as a human being, as the older guy of this group, the apology was terrible. Yeah, <laughs> if I that mean, was the that, apology, that that, that was. Not that what I'd be looking the, for. The Urban Meyer Hall of Fame for apologies, <laughs> uh, as we well know, uh, apologies don't happen from those kinds of guys because they hate to say they're wrong or they're sorry for something. And even when they do, 
it comes in a backhanded kind of way. Even Fonzie attempted to say wrong. He just had a tough time saying it. You know, we used to live in the same building, right? Is Henry Winkler? I kid you not. In New York okay, City. you just went to the Hall of Fame now. No, no, no. I for mean, other reasons, I understand. Yeah, but course, now, but no, no, you live no, with the Fonz almost. We, in the same building, we live in the same <laughs> building in New York City. He's and one of my all time favorites, the, by the way. The nicest guy. You get in the yeah. elevator with him. Yeah. Here's the funny part. Yeah. So you get in the elevator, it's really quiet. And I find, I actually wrote a paper in university called The Intimacy of Otis, which is about human behavior in elevators. You know, the Otis elevated uh, car and, and moving stairway. Yeah, company sure, of course. Is Absolutely. The oldest elevator yeah. company in the world. So I wrote about human behavior, whether you've been in a city or a country, whatever. And you get in the elevator and you're quiet. You're basically akin to being in a closet with people you don't know. Yeah. I look down. And a lot of people do. I look down. I make eye contact because I laugh. Yeah, well, see, cause cause I, see, that would freak I, me out. I do it on purpose. Yeah, well, I know you do. Yeah. <laughs> but Henry Winkler gets in the elevator and he sees these people. And I don't know two of the people that are on the elevator. And he looks around and he sees us looking at him and he goes, you want me to say it, don't you? <laughs> kid you not. And we all kind of nod our heads. And he goes, I go, yeah. And he goes, hey. So, you know, that was our moment. But he's really cool. And uh, oh, Henry the- Winkler, the Fonz. Right, here we go. There it is. There it is. I that's think that's me you- knocking that out. No, no. Mike. It no, might no. be me. No, no. It's- you want to go do karate in the garage? That's a great way to end the show. It's time. Will Strickland. Joining us today. And then the show goes an hour and a half. See what I'm saying? It's uh, And it went by like that. I love when you come in. So does Thanks, the audience. Sir. We've got to do this more often. Uh, tomorrow, apparently, the studio is being stripped down. So there is uh, no show tomorrow. So I guess I'll have to call the sponsors, DKI, who are going to come in and uh, watch the show. Let's get ready to yeah. Thanks, Wanger. That other sh- whatever you're doing better be big. That's all I'm going to say. So uh, join us on Thursday, and uh, we'll talk uh, a little more picks. I'm thinking even Bono might come in along with Victor Newman and have some Bono picks. How about that? Why, it's a beautiful day. <laughs> <laughs>